This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others, and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Hey friends, and welcome to the Worth Your Time podcast. I'm your host, Erica Anderson. I'm a Christian freelance writer, mom of two littles, and I'm passionate about helping you live out your best and deepest faith in everyday life. On this podcast, you'll hear from inspiring women, moms, and ministry leaders, authors, and more. Those on mission for God with a message to inspire you in your Christian walk, wherever that may be. Each month, I send out interviews, tips, book reviews, and exclusive giveaways to my email list. If you'd like to receive these things, just head to my website, ericaanderson.com, and sign up. My new book, Reason to Return, Why Women Need the Church and the Church Needs Women, comes out this January, and I want you to be the first to know all the details. Enjoy the show. Hey, Leah, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Yeah, good to be here. Yeah, well, um, I'm excited to talk with you. Um, you are uh, in a little chapter of my upcoming book, and I wanted to talk with you a little bit more about your story and kind of share it with people in a more personal way. Maybe if they've read the book or plan to, um, it kind of helps to get someone like their face and their voice and really make it come alive. And I thought you had, <laughs> yes, that too. We all, we all have that. I mean, everyone has the message. That's right. This is real life. <laughs> yeah, real life. I'm surprised I don't have one in right now. Um, but you know, I your story is really fascinating to me and also really hopeful. And so I want to talk with you about it. So so the reason that we're speaking is you have a an interesting background of coming from a really like a fundamentalist, like I'll let you describe it, but it was a really <laughs> traumatic upbringing in a very dysfunctional church environment. So tell us a little bit about you and how you grew up. Yeah. So just kind of, I guess, try to sum it up here. Um, I'm the middle of five kids. We were all homeschooled from kindergarten through 12th grade. Um, And we were part of, I don't know, like how specific um, to be here, but we were part of what I would now call a cult. Um, It's called No Greater Joy Ministries. And it's sort of connected with a network of churches, mostly very, very fundamentalist um, Baptist type um, thing. And so as far as I knew, that was normal. That was church. And um, you know, some of my very early memories of church are being told to sit still, be quiet. And my mother giving me like, we used to call it the death snap where she would like snap her fingers. And it's like, you better stop whatever you're doing and don't even breathe right now, or you're in so much trouble. (laughs) Um, And, you know, being told to like, we had to wear dresses and um, gosh, like, you know, essentially be quiet and don't ask too many questions because you're female. Um, and so that's kind of what I knew. And as a woman, um, you know, it was, it, it was pretty regularly talked about that, like women were never allowed in church leadership. We were not allowed to speak in church. We were rarely allowed to sing alone in church because you're a female. <laughs> Lord knows what might happen. Where did they get that one from? <laughs> let the women keep silent in the churches for it is not permitted to them to speak. Yeah. Okay. It's you take one verse and you take it really far, really far. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so, 
that's just kind of the way it was. And I thought that was normal and I wasn't looking for anything else. I had some issues in there growing up that got squashed really fast. Like I remember when I was 15, um, I remember pointing out um, to my family that everything always seemed to be women's fault. Like mm. if a guy cheated on his wife, it was probably because his wife was not treating him right or whatever, wasn't available. <laughs> or, you know, like if, if a man had anger issues, it was probably because his wife wasn't respecting him at home or, you know, that everything was always women's fault. And that made my dad really angry and um, got in a whole lot of trouble for that one. And so I learned not only is everything women's fault, but keep your mouth shut about it. Um, and I, so yeah, so that was church. And like I said, like it was normal to me. The thing about being in a cult is nobody tells you you're in a cult. Um, nobody's like, Hey, come join our weird church. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and so really up until I was about 27, 26, 27, I wasn't looking for anything else. That was church. So when you think back to the God you knew then or whoever God was to you, how did you view him at that time? Um, you know, this is where it gets, uh, starts to get really murky. And this is the thing about spiritual abuse is that it's not always very clear cut. If it were clear cut, everyone would see it and would get it right away, but it's not, it's like the stereotype or not stereotype, but like the pattern of, um, like, let's say other types of abuse is that it's not always terrible. Mm-hmm. sometimes it's really good. And it was the, it was the same for me and the spiritual abuse that I experienced. Um, you know, like if you asked me if God loved me, I would probably would have said, well, he did, which that's a whole other thing about our background um, is that we were taught that God does not love you. Now God did love you. God loved the world. So he sent his son. That's mm-hmm. what they would tell you. Again, taking like one verse in one word and one tense of a word and taking it horribly out of context. Um, anyway, so I would, I guess I would say like what I saw, like if I pictured like God's posture towards me, it was a lot of this, like just arms crossed and like sort of frowning and like um, waiting for me to screw something up. And then he'd roll his eyes and be annoyed at me. Yeah. And so what are some of the other, I just want to kind of fill in a few details in terms of the cult itself or what you're calling a cult. What are some other, I guess, details that give you that, or that made you say, make you say that? Yeah. Um, they were really hard line about the King James version translation of the Bible. And by hard line, I mean, they would call anybody who didn't use it a Bible corrector, um, And what that meant in practical terms was pastors who would teach, like, this is the Greek word that's been translated this way in English. And what this means in Greek is, and they would give you this whole other context. Well, they would call that Bible correcting. Um, Mm. So they, I mean, they would tell you that anyone who didn't read and teach from and believe, meaning believe that the KJV is the only right translation. Sam Gipp was one of the um, like KJV only people that they really revered. Um, Peter Ruckman was another one. Um, And if you look at the things that these guys have written, 
it's, there's a little bit of truth in every lie. Right. Um, but anyway, the way that it played out for me was that I was both fully convinced that the KJV was the only translation that was really truly correct. And there's like a lot of background about original texts and why they come to that conclusion. But um, I was fully convinced of it. And I was also fully convinced that you couldn't trust people who didn't believe that because Mm -hmm. they didn't really believe the Bible. That's what we were told. Um, So that was part of it. Um, I, I always say like, if I had to boil it down to three things that were sort of central in this like belief system that I grew up in, the KJV thing would be a big one. Um, God does not love you is another one. Like God did love the world. God so loved past tense, the world that he gave his only son. Um, that's a big one. And why didn't he love, why doesn't he love us now? Well, it's past tense. And they're so literalist about the KJV stuff that even the tense of a verb, they'll pull a whole doctrine from. So what was their like metric for being saved? Was there extra details on that? Um, They would tell you that it was belief only. Um, And this is the tough part is that Like, if you boil it down to, like, what does the scripture really say? They're right. It is faith alone in Christ alone. And that's where it's tricky because it's like they're not wrong about everything. If they were wrong about everything, would be easy to spot. Yeah. But their idea of belief only means what they meant was it is a cognitive ascension to a set of truths from the scriptures. Hmm. I don't really think anybody in there understands what it means to believe with your whole heart. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like your heart, according to the scriptures is your thoughts, desires, emotions, and choices. And for those four things to all be wrapped up in believing that Jesus came and died for me, I don't really think any of them get that because they're living in the thoughts and choices. They're living like up here. Yeah. Not a heart, not an experiencing God situation. No, 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 no. Cause emotions are for women and women are, this is the third thing not made in the image of God. <laughs> what? Yeah. So what, the, and, and again, this, this comes back to the KJV thing and being like extraordinarily literalist in their interpretation, because the verse in Genesis says in the image of God created, he, him male and female created, he, them. And so what they did, they meaning Michael and Debbie Pearl, the leaders of this like cult thing, what they did was they took that, Part of this is their ignorance about English grammar. Um, they're not super educated people, but what they did was they took that verse in the image of God created he, him and said, well, Adam is made in the image of God and Eve is not. Wow. So then what, what are women made in the image of? Well, they'll, this is the ridiculous part. They'll tell you that women are made in the image of men. And I'm like, we're very clearly not look with your eyeballs. Yeah. <laughs> like, obviously <laughs> that's what makes us awesome and different, but that's what they'll tell you. And so, because we are one step farther removed from God, what that really boils down to, if you follow this to its very logical end, what you will conclude is that women are no better than cats or dogs or goats or horses. Mm-hmm. And so your value as a woman is in being attached to a man because the man's made an image of God and you're not. And so until you get married, it's your dad or your brothers. And then after you get married, it's your husband. 
what you do as a widow, I'm not sure, <laughs> but like, wow, that's how it, that's how it it's played out. Like, reminds me of like the Middle East, you know, like Saudi Arabia. Well, this is what's interesting. So, um, a couple of years ago, through the church I attend now, um, I got connected with this mm. small group, co-ed small group, um, in where I met my husband. It's a great small group. Yeah, <laughs> but one of the guys in the small group is an immigrant from India. And it's just crazy. Like whenever he talks about their culture, I'm like, I can relate. Mm, Yeah. So he and I have had some really interesting conversations about like, this is like so deeply ingrained in Indian culture and in my culture that I grew up in, spent 27 years in that culture and yet it's not biblical. So what do we do? Mm -hmm. It's really hard to uproot that kind of stuff. That's so interesting to like see how you would have these similarities in like two totally different places and like mm-hmm. in the reasons why, but, but yeah. yet it's, it's the, maybe the same sort of distorted thought process, you know, on the foundation. So, okay. So at 27, then there was a moment or a time where you were like, yeah. wait a second. So tell me <laughs> about that turning point. Yeah. So, um, after I finished graduate school, I moved back to where my family lived in Northern Virginia at the time. And I taught for a couple of years in, uh, Fairfax County public schools. And the education piece was where my parents really departed from the teaching of this cult education, especially for girls was pretty discouraged. Um, and college was very much discouraged and definitely for girls. Like, why would you go to college? Like Debbie Pearl told me one time, your degree is stupid. And I was like, cool. <laughs> Anyways. Um, so, but my, my dad, especially um, because of some things in his background, always encouraged all of us to go to college. And I'm grateful because that really changed the trajectory of my life in a big way. Um and so I had been teaching in Fairfax for a couple of years and I had what I jokingly call my quarter life crisis <laughs> um, where I was uh, almost 26 and I woke up on this Saturday morning and it's like, I just had this revelation. Like my job is the only thing in my life that I love and I hate everything else about my life. I don't have any friends. I've lived here for two and a half years. Like, what do I do now? And um, cause you know, even in Fairfax, I was going to a church that was connected with this like whole network. So I was hearing the same stuff at church and I wasn't meeting anybody I was interested in. Yeah. And part of my, my extended singleness is part of my story because what we were told is this sort of prosperity gospel, where if you do all of these things and you're the, one of the good girls, then you're definitely going to get married young because that's God's blessing on you. And you won't have any trouble getting pregnant and you'll never have a miscarriage. And like, you know, and that didn't happen for me. And um, so here I am like almost 26 and I thought that was so old to be single. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I know. I mean, I know I always wanted to get now. myself, but yeah, now I'm like, Oh, that's so young. Right. It doesn't mean anything. But at the time I was like, I'm going to die alone. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, so I called my mom and I was like, mom, I just realized like, I hate everything except my job. Like, what do I do? And she did not give me the advice that I expected. Um, because my mom was a really steady, like even keeled person. She goes, well, why don't you just move somewhere? She goes, you're 25. What's the worst that could happen? You like fall on your face and you end up coming back to live with me and dad. So who cares? 
And I was like, but that is the worst that could happen. (laughs) (laughs) But um, so my younger sister uh, had graduated from college at that time. And she was trying to move out of Virginia and just looking for kind of a fresh start. And so we said, okay, wherever we go, we're going to go together. So that way, you know, if we do completely fail, at least we'll have each other. Um, and we have an older sister that we're very close to. And so, um, kind of came down to a couple different cities, but we ended up choosing Nashville, um, because our older sister was here and she had three little boys at the time. And, um, and so we were like, well, we'd like to be around when the boys are growing up. So we moved to Nashville. Um, and I worked for the Pearls for about nine months when we first moved here. Cause they live, um, about an hour from Nashville. And that was a terrible experience. And that was really part of like working for them and working for their youngest daughter for that, like eight, nine months really was pretty eye-opening to me because just some things that they would say, like, didn't add up. Um, it was, like they would contradict themselves. And then at one point I was asked to do something that was illegal and it wasn't like a felony, but it was illegal. And I said, no. And Debbie Pearl got so angry with me. She said, you work for me. You'll do whatever I tell you. And I said, no, I will not. I work for you. I'm not your slave. I was like, I don't have to do anything. You tell me because I can quit my job right here and now. We had this whole conflict about it. Anyway, so that was kind of the first year. Mm -hmm. And I started going, just something didn't sit right in me with everything that I had seen working for the pearls. So at that point, Abby and I moved closer to Nashville. My little sister and I moved closer to Nashville and I started attending this church, um, fellowship Bible church in Brentwood. Um, it's in the middle of all these mansions here. And, um, I went the first time because, um, the girl who was my next door neighbor in high school invited me and she had been part of this whole cult thing. And so I, again, like I wasn't looking for anything different. Like I was annoyed with the pearls and all of their foolishness, but I wasn't looking for anything different because theologically I still believed all of that stuff about the King James and about like the subservience of women and like all that stuff. I did. I believed it. Um, so my friend invites me to come to this church with her and her husband. And so I was like, yeah, sure. So I pull up and I figure out which building it is because they all look the same. And I walk in and there is a woman on stage leading worship. And I was like, excuse me. (laughs) I was just like, I mean, it was stunning to me. Hmm. Um, And what was interesting was like, there had always been this sort of picture painted for us about like when women are in leadership, like a, it's because the men are useless and they'll use the story of Deborah in the Bible for that, like that she had to take a leadership role because Barack was so awful. Well, that's not really what the Bible says, but they'll tell you that's what it says. But what was interesting about this woman leading worship, who is now a good friend of mine is that um, she was just so humble in the way that she did it. And she was very obviously not looking for personal attention. Like, you know, sometimes you go to these places and the singers are like putting on a concert. Yeah. Yeah. They're not leading worship. They're like showing you how good they are. Yeah. She did that. And in the seven years that now that I have known her, she never did that. She, she'd never done it. Not one time. And, um, and so that was 
that was a really different experience for me because I'm seeing something that I was told was wrong and yet she's doing it in a very humble and gentle and biblical way. So there, there's the first thing and that's not really sitting right. And then um, this church has multiple men who are teaching pastors. So they sort of rotate. Well, the, the guy who was teaching that week, they're in the middle of a series on the word of God. And like the Lord set me up for this. <laughs> Because after all this teaching about like people who don't use the King James, don't believe the Bible, they're Bible correctors, blah, blah, blah. You can't trust them, all this stuff. Well, the whole topic of the sermon was the authority of the word. Mm-hmm. And it was just still like really funny to me. Like, okay, do you close I see you? Um, <laughs> and he, like this guy stood up there and taught and it, they sort of like around the campus, they sort of nicknamed him the professor because he used to teach Bible at Moody Bible College. Um and he taught just so thoroughly on the authority of the word and how you need to believe what you hold in your hands, read it and believe it. And he talked, which is super ironic because that phrase, read it and believe it was used over and over and over and over in my childhood. Yeah. And I, I was just like, this is not what I was told. And like the Lord just like I, there are very few times I can claim to have heard directly from the Lord, but this is one of them. The Lord just said to me in that moment, this is not the only thing you've been told that isn't true. Mm, wow. And that mo- from that moment on, I was like, uh, I was just unsettled. And so I didn't, I didn't want to go back to the church because I was like, these people have women in leadership. Yeah. That They're would be a lot. It's a lot to take up, take in so much. Um, and, but the next Sunday rolled around and I just really felt strongly that I should go back. And so I did. And then the next Sunday came around and I felt like I should go back. So I did. And I just kept going and I told no one where I was going to church for like six months (laughs) because I wasn't really sure where my sister stood on things. And, you know, like they're my best friends and I wasn't trying to like shoot down our relationship and you really got shunned in this cult, if you like left or anything different. And so, um, so for like six, seven months, I just didn't tell anyone where I was going to church, even my sister who I lived with. Um, and then that next, so that was January, 2015, the following fall. So November, 2015, they did this like six week series, just talking about the gospel and how the gospel affects your everyday life, which was mind blowing to me because I just thought like the gospel was like a one and done, believe it moving on. Mm-hmm. Um, and they talked about how like the gospel affects and transforms your life. And uh, it, it was like really interesting and really um, like moving for me. And then this one week in there in um, mid to late November, one of our teaching pastors went very off script because you can like go back and listen to the sermons that he was teaching. Um, And the the text that he had was related to nothing, what he ended up saying. Um, But he just took like 45, 50 minutes and went on about how the central point of the gospel is that God loves you. Mm. And I was like, (laughs) Yeah. After hearing your whole life, God doesn't love you. Right. But the whole thing was that for me, 
no teacher's authority was ever going to come above the word. And this is one thing that I can actually look back and say was a positive thing about the way that I was raised is that we were just raised with reverence for and like a deep rooted belief in the word and the word being the final authority in our lives. And so because he went through all of these scriptures and like laid out from the scriptures that God loves you. I could, I couldn't say anything about it because I'm like, but he's proving it from the word. Yeah. And the only thing I had ever heard about God doesn't love you was John 3, 16 being past tense. (laughs) Which isn't a lot to say, you know, yeah. Not a lot to go on when somebody else is whipping out like 40 verses. And so, um, so yeah. So I sent the pastor an email after church that Sunday and I said, I need to come talk to you about what you taught today because I've just never heard anything like this. And I've gone to church my whole life. And um, so we ended up meeting a couple of weeks later and he, I planned on asking him a lot of questions. He actually asked me a lot of questions. <laughs> and uh, at the end of this conversation, we talked for like an hour and a half. At the end of this conversation, he said, Leah, I don't know if you trust me as your pastor. I wouldn't trust anyone if I were you and if I'd been through what you've been through. But um, he said, what you've been through is called spiritual abuse. And we, as your church family, would like to come alongside you and help you heal. And like when he said spiritual abuse, it was like this glass bubble I was in shattered. Hmm. Like we, you know, like you, you've probably heard because you're pretty um, well-versed on current affairs about how like in North Korea, they like brainwash the children to think that they're like, their life is so good and everybody should be as lucky as us. And nobody has it as good as we have it here. That was, I mean, it was like that. Like we were pretty brainwashed to think that like, we're the only ones who have it right. And we're the only ones who were living like a really good life. And aren't you glad your mom stays home with you and doesn't work and doesn't work as if stay-at-home moms don't work. Yeah. Um, right. And aren't you glad you're homeschooled because other kids have to go to school and they get brainwashed in school and you're here thinking for yourself and it's like so much brainwashing. And so then somebody called all of that abusive and it just like shattered my worldview. And I was like, I don't know what to think about anything. <laughs> um, and so I really clung to the word through that season. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't know if anybody's telling me the truth, but this I know I can trust. So that's kind of the story. And uh, and ended up going to counseling for five years after that, and um, which was incredible. I had a wonderful therapist who really helped me through a lot of things. And um, yeah, it's a little... Well, I mean, I think I love so many parts of this last part of your story in that Number one, it's just so cool how like God was drawing you to him. Just like nobody else really. I mean, your friend invited you, but it was you that kept going. And um, I know that moment of hearing like the clearest that you can really hear God's voice. Like that hasn't happened to me often, but it has happened to me. And so that's a really, that's a really powerful moment. Um, And you know, then that like the Holy Spirit is like working like really hard in your life if you're able to hear that. And then like, I just love your pastor. Like, I love him for, He's great. I love that you came from this like really awful church environment. And then like this new church environment was like actually the he- the healing uh, conduit. So I, I, you know, part of what we're talking about in 
you know, my work and um, for people watching this video is, you know, a lot of people will have that negative experience, whether it's a cult or something less uh, severe and feel like they can't trust another church or another leader. And I think more often than not, the pl- it, it seems it seems against common sense, like that you could go to another church and find the healing that you need. Yeah. But um, can you talk a little bit about how you were able to trust them and why you think like actually finding a truly healthy church was part of what led you to healing and becoming, you know, the person you are today? Yeah. Um, well, the first thing I would say is that, you know, I grew up in a cult. If you didn't grow up in a cult, that doesn't make your experience less valid than mine. Um, you know, I think your heart is your heart and we don't need to compare it. Like it's not a contest for who's the worst off. So like church wounds are real. And I think they happen in every church, even if your church is healthy. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, like my last roommate before I got married had, had been through some pretty rough stuff with her church up in Indiana. So I, I think church wounds are common, unfortunately, because the whole joints run by sinners yeah. as it turns out. Yes. Um, and the first thing I would say is that, um, I don't think you should be in a rush to heal and forgive. Um, I never felt rushed to heal and forgive. And I think that's part of the reason that I was able to, um, you know, I think, um, I, I never stopped going to church, but I thought about it, um, because I was just so confused and so hurt. And so like, is everything I believe a lie? Like, is any of it true? Um, in it, you know, and there, there was a point for me, like where, although I, you know, since I had grown up on the King James, like it really wasn't difficult for me to understand. Like, I know like the understandable bit of it is like what pushes a lot of people away from the KJV. That wasn't an issue for me, but there was a point where I, like, I had another conversation with one of the pastors and said, like, I don't feel like I can read the Bible anymore. Cause I just hear my dad and this like cult leader in my head. Like, I'm not getting God's voice out of this. And he goes, why don't you stop reading it for a while? And I yeah. was like, you're my pastor. And you just told me to stop reading the Bible. Like, and uh, he said, just stop reading it for a while and let's learn to listen to God's voice in mm-hmm. other ways. And yeah, because so you're probably one of the few people, not few people, but you know, you knew the Bible, you know, you really knew that though, that scripture. And so that might not be great advice for like everyone, but for you specifically, I can see where he was coming from. Yeah. Well, and I, I had to like get all those other voices out of my head to learn to hear like the real voice of God. And I want to be really careful about that because the voice of God does not ever contradict the word of God. And Mm -hmm. I think sometimes like the like spiritual movement can like go, well, I heard this from God. And I'm like, mm, no, you didn't. <laughs> if it's not in the Bible. You heard it wrong. Right. But so like, but for me, um, I was reading like these words that I had read for, you know, decades and just couldn't hear God in them. I was just hearing my dad and this cult leader. And right, so, right. so I did, I stopped reading the Bible for like nine months. And then when I went back to it, I ended up with a different translation that my church was using. 
And it, and buying, let me tell you, buying a non KGB Bible was one of the most terrifying things for me. Yeah. Like I, I cried in the Lifeway store because I was like, God, I don't want to do this. This is a right. Like, like anyway. Yeah. So, so that was part of the journey. Um, I think, you know, like my therapist said to me at one point in those five years that we worked together, um, we're wounded in relationship and we heal in relationship. And so I kept going and it was a tough season at our church too, because there really wasn't a single adult ministry for like really until about a couple years ago. Um, and so like, it was a little lonely and it was hard to like make friends. And, um, and I remember like a friend that I had met through my sister, um, said to me at one point, like, I was just had a little breakdown and was like telling her that I was really lonely and tired of being lonely and didn't really know what to do. And she said, you know, I think not very many people can walk with you through this dark season that you're in. And that's why you've had trouble making friends. And when you come out on the other side of it, you're going to find your people, but just have a little grace for people because they they don't know how to walk through this stuff. And so, you know, like one of the verses that kind of helped me through that season uh, I think it's Hosea 2.14 and it says, I will draw her out into the wilderness and I will speak tenderly to her there. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, the whole story of Hosea is like a little bit in the news because of that movie out of it. Yeah. Um, but that, that one really struck me and kind of stuck with me um, because the order of things I think matters. Like the Lord says, I will draw her out into the wilderness, the desert. So you have to go to the desert first. And then he says, and I will speak tenderly to her there. And so I was like, well, I'm in the desert. So speak up, Jesus. <laughs> like, Yeah. <laughs> but I, part of, you know, part of it was the rhythm. You know, I, I wouldn't say there were any, like, there, not any, but there weren't a lot of, like, big, loud, transformative moments for me. But it was the rhythm of, like, it's Sunday and I'm going to church. In some Sundays I didn't sing because I, you know, I just couldn't, um, but other people singing mm-hmm. carried me along. Um, you know, one of the first things I noticed about this church was that the men sang and, um, and I had not experienced that growing up. Like, I don't know if you've been to like a really uptight fundamentalist Baptist church, but the men don't really sing that much. Really? But like they sing at this church. And so sometimes I would just stand there and listen. And so like, you think you're like off key singing or whatever, isn't a big deal. It is a big deal. The Lord says make a joyful noise, not a beautiful noise, but like, and I'm a musician, but, um, other people's singing carried me along and other people's worship carried me along and other people turning around and just saying hi to me. Even if we like never really talked for, I mean, the church is huge. There's like 5,000 people at the church, but like um, just those small things just kind of carried me through that season. And yet like the work I did with my therapist was huge. Um, but as far as church goes, like it took me a very long time to trust again. Mm-hmm. Like, so I started going to fellowship in January, 2015. It's seven years later. And I would say I really started to trust people a little, maybe three years ago, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good 
a really great point to make um, in terms of just this whole conversation and and the the things that we're talking about in um, on this platform because you know it's easy to even in my book I worry about people thinking um, that I'm talking about rushing into this and I I want to reiterate what you said about not rushing and about like like yes I think that and I think you would agree like going to church is part of our call of being a Christian, being a part of the body of Christ. But it doesn't mean if you stop going for a few months while you're trying to figure out what's going on, uh, that that's like wrong. It's not like sometimes you need that space. Like you needed the time away from the Bible. And sometimes you need time away from a church as you navigate and try to hear what God is saying and where he's calling you and all of these things. And I a hundred percent, I even have a, um, an analogy in the book of, when I was trying to overcome uh, like an eating disorder in my life. And I, there's a book, a famous book called overcoming overeating. And so the premise of this book is that the first page or the first chapter, she's like, I want you for the next week to literally eat whatever you want, whenever you want, you know, no restrictions, which mm-hmm. is like super scary to a person that's like trying to overcome like binge eating problems. Mm-hmm. Um, but the point of it all in the end is to say, when you give yourself that freedom to be curious, to explore, to actually eat what you want, a lot of times, like the triggers and the trauma and all of that sort of dissipate within the freedom that you give yourself Yeah, and you allow yourself to hear actually what your body's saying and hear actually what, you know, you're trying to figure out and what's really the problem. And I think the same can be said when you're on a faith journey. Um, and so I just, I love that you said that and, you know, God has, we like, there's no time frame here. Like God doesn't need you to go to church every single week for your life for the rest of your life, you know, to move in your life. Um, so anyway, that's, I just wanted to comment on that. I I mean, like, yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think what I learned about forgiveness through that process of like sort of coming out of this belief system and learning to see and believe what the Bible really says. Um, I think what I learned about forgiveness is that you can't actually like force it. Like, you know, we hear all the time, like, oh, forgiveness is a choice. I do like, that's so rude. Like, I don't need that. Like, that's not helpful. Thanks a lot. But like, I I think what I learned was that, um, you know, like I, it's, it's that whole grieving process. Like there's the shock and denial and I forget all of the things, anger, bargaining, acceptance, I think is how it goes. Um, and I went through all of that and it doesn't go neatly in order, by the way, you like end up in a, on a hamster wheel with some of it, but I was, you know, angry at the leaders of this thing and angry at my parents and angry at God and, you know, and I went through all of that and just like, um, and I remember telling my therapist, like, I know I need to forgive because I know that like bitterness eats at people and it makes you a terrible person. And I don't want to be like that, but I also like, I'm just not there. And she, she said, I think it's great that you know that. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I was like, what? 
what do you mean? Because <laughs> I expected a lecture on like, well, you need to forgive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and she didn't give me that, which, you know, great therapist, but um, she said, I think it's great that you know you're there. Why don't you just tell God that you want to want to forgive? Yeah. Because I didn't even really want to at that point. I wanted to like go burn the place down. But like, <laughs> she said, why don't you tell God that you want to want to forgive, but you don't really want to right now. And so I did. And then over time, and the thing is, we don't get to pick the timeline of how God moves our hearts. Right. But over time, I, I realized, you know, a few months down the road, I, I want to forgive them now. And I haven't yet, but I want to forgive them. And then I don't know how long after that, it was a while where I realized one day, like, oh, yeah, I've, I really have forgiven them, like both the leaders and my parents and you know, and, um, you can't pick the time. Like forgiveness is a decision, but it's also like a movement of your heart that you can't conjure up. Like the Lord has to do it. And the great part is he's going to, if you let him do it, but like it, you know, I think the forgiveness piece is a significant part of healing. And, you know, if you are in a place where you're still angry and, you know, like bitterness gets a really bad rap, but I'm going to tell you something that someone told me along that road. Bitterness is the language of pain. Mm -hmm. And if you look at like word studies were a big thing for us in the whole like KJV line of thinking. And so if you like take that word bitter or bitterness or bitterly all of the other like conjugations and search the Bible for what it says about bitterness. And what you're going to find is that most often you'll see that word in terms of grieving, like someone gives a bitter cry or Mm -hmm. they cry bitterly or they grieve bitterly or um, it's, it's most often associated with grieving, not with sin. Mm -hmm. And, um, So if you're in a place of bitterness, like what I would just tell people is that's the language of your pain. And what's going to be really helpful, in my opinion, is someone to hear your pain and sit with it and not try to fix it or give you a solution or give you spiritual advice about it, which for me was my therapist. Um, But letting somebody hear it and letting it come out for me was what uprooting bitterness looked like. Like everybody wants to quote you that verse in the new Testament that talks about not letting a root of bitterness take hold in your life. That's how you don't let it. It's not by like refusing to feel whatever you felt. It's by bringing it out in the open. Like that's what I always think about dandelions because they have that big tap root. They're the worst when you're trying to read a, weed a flower bed, but the way that you get the dandelion out is you dig way down deep and then you bring it up into the light. And that's how we get the root of bitterness out too. It's not by shoving it down underground farther. It's by bringing it up into the light. And so for me, I, I believe that's the first piece of forgiveness is letting the bitterness come to the light and letting it just be there. And letting somebody else hear your pain and feel it with you. And um, that's part of healing in relationship. And I think it, it, you know, the thing that helped me so much is just going like, God is big enough to handle all of what I am feeling. And he's not a, he's not irritated by my anger and he's not impatient with me. Like the Bible says he was tempted in every way that we are. Like he gets it. 
he understands, he knows what betrayal feels like. He knows what abandonment feels like. He knows what abuse feels like. He knows what it's like to be falsely accused of things. Like he does understand. And um, yeah, like there there was a book too um, along the way that really helped me by David G. Benner called Surrender to Love. I don't really reread books like that, but I've read that book probably four or five times now. And every time it like gets to me in a different way, but like, that's really what it was. is like believing that God loved me and like, because God loved me, all of these other things were true too. And, you know, part of that was the rhythm of church. Part of that was hearing other people's worship. Part of it was, um, you know, going to a different translation of the Bible than the one I had been told was the only right one. Part of it was um, like having to step back from some things that I had been told were true. Like you have to read the Bible every day. Um, So all I would say is that for me, like what I held on to that had to be true was the word. And if you have one anchor like that, that's really all it takes because the Lord will orient you. And if you don't have that anchor for whatever reason, um, ask for one. Yeah. I think for some people it can be church. Um, I think for some people it can be like a friendship or a relationship or your marriage or whatever. Um, but like, I remember, like, I remember being on the edge one time of going like, I don't know if I want to be a Christian and the deconstruction thing's getting a lot of noise right now. But I remember being on the edge of like, I don't know if I believe any of this anymore. I don't know if I want to believe any of this anymore. And one of the things that um, drew me back was, um, it, it was like a really weird time. I was like working in youth ministry at our church. And then I was like on the edge of, I don't know if I'm a Christian. <laughs> it was the time. But like, the other female leaders in our like youth ministry. Um, this is like a very emotional memory for me. It was my 29th birthday. And um, <laughs> I never had a birthday party um, in my whole life. Mm. And they like planned, I'm sorry. It's okay. They like planned this like huge surprise birthday party for me. Um. And like, I, it's really hard to surprise me. I'm the most suspicious person (laughs) and they did, they like totally surprised me. Um, and it was like, it's just a birthday party and there wasn't any kind of like spiritual lesson and all of that, but like, these were women that I knew because of my church and I don't know who somebody told them that I'd never had a birthday party. And they're like playing this whole thing for me. And it was just like, I don't know. It was just like this, like, hey, you matter to us. And the crazy thing was like, if you'd asked me like a week before that, I don't think I would have said I was super close to any of them, but they were just so determined to like show me that I mattered and that they cared and that, you know, um, that everybody deserves to have a birthday party. And they like did all these special things. Like I have an inordinate love of Mexican food and they got Mexican food. And um, there were like, I forget how many girls were in the group. I think there were 10 of us at that point. And they had 
gone out and gotten like 29 little gifts, like nothing big, but like, to me, that was so significant. And like, this is the stuff that like, it's not always about church on Sunday. It's sometimes it's about like a birthday party. Yeah. I knew them because of church and like, here I am like on the edge of, I don't know if I believe I'm a Christian or whatever. And they were like, let me give you a birthday party. And like, for me, that was like, so that was like more love than I could handle at that point. Um, and, uh, like this, this is the stuff that I think really matters about church. Even if you're not really sure if you're on board with it, or if you really believe any of this stuff, it's like, um, it's a chance to like, like the church used to be the center of every community, you know? And because of stuff like this, because like the Bible says, like the Lord sets the lonely ones in families. Like that was my family in that season. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is why I think church matters. Like, even if you aren't really sure if you believe it yet, or if you're like, oh, no, I'm kind of like toying with this deconstruction thing. It's like, I've been there. I get it. I was there too. And what I can tell you is that it's worth it to stay around. Um, and it, it won't feel like it's worth it at first. And you just keep going for the same reason that we keep exercising or we make sure our kids eat a snack in the middle of the afternoon. It's what we do because that's who we are. Um, And I think if you're open to it over time, God will speak to you. Um, God's a gentleman. He doesn't force himself in where he's not wanted, but Um, I think if you're open to it or if you want to be open to it, maybe you're not, but you want to be, then I think over time, like stuff like a birthday party or Mexican food or a conversation with a pastor in like, you know, you'll be seven years down the road someday and not realize, oh, my life's completely different than it was before, you know? Mm -hmm. I don't don't realize how small changes over time make a big difference. Um, you know, because I do think that sometimes when people are thinking about going back to church, if they haven't been going in a long time, it's kind of like, Oh, it's just one more thing. I know I need to do it. Not recognizing that that one act of getting back into that habit can have really big long-term effects. Um, but you're not going to necessarily see it right away but you may look back and be like, wow, like that one choice to do that, you know, cause this and cause that. And I met this person and that person and God worked through this. And so um, we can know, I think that like, we know that God wants us to be in a body of believers. We know that. And so that's the sort of the foundation of it. And if we know that, then we can trust that and, and walk into it knowing that he has good things planned for um, for our participation in that. Yeah. And, you know, um, I believe in connecting with one church and being there long-term. I don't believe in church hopping. And at the same time, like if you're seeing like really big issues at your church, it's okay to leave. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, You know, God put us in a body, but he didn't put us in a cancerous body. Like, yeah. 
Yeah, there's definitely lots of, you know, and and we talk about that. Um, What are some of the warning signs? What are some of the red flags? Yeah. There are unhealthy communities. And like you said, there is always going to be sin and there is going to be hurt in every church because we're human. Uh, But there are some places where it's not good. You don't want to stay that it is toxic and you should be aware of those things. Yeah. Well, and like, I would say that some of the lessons I've taken away from, you know, my background are that I'm very wary of a cult of personality. Um, One of the things I appreciate about my church now is that um, there are multiple teaching pastors. And so it's pretty hard to form a cult of personality when the same personality isn't there every week. Right. Um, And I know that's, that's pretty rare. I know most churches have one person teaching every week, but um, for me, I think I'm just very, very cautious if people talk more about their pastor than they do about the Lord, that's a red flag to me. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think churches should have some rotation there in the, the pastor, the pastoring. Yeah. You and me both. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I guess I would just say like, um, you know, in the seven years that I have been here at this church, yeah, there has still been hurt for me. Like things have happened that I disagreed with or whatever. Um, but there, like when I've spoken up about those things, like for example, the single adult ministry or lack thereof at one point, um, I spoke up about that pretty regularly for like three and a half years, um, like to different elders and pastors and stuff. And, um, finally, (laughs) Finally, I just sat down with our, uh, one of our teaching pastors and I said, Rob, it's a sin for us to act like single adults don't matter. And that's what you're telling them. Cause you've got something for everybody else. We've got a women's ministry and a men's ministry and children's ministry and a student ministry. And we're not trying with single adults. And that's a sin. Cause what you're telling them is we care about everybody except you. And, uh, <laughs> and he was like, I think you're right. Well, I, yeah, I was so surprised that he said that, but a couple of months later they said, Hey, we're going to start opening small groups just for single adults, like women only, men only co-ed, whatever. Um, and so to me, that was like a really good sign because like, yeah, I'd been like advocating for this for a couple of years. Like I did, I believed it was a sin. And when I said that bluntly, then, you know, my pastor who didn't really know me very well went actually you're right well the ability to admit that you're wrong is big green flag to me yeah Yeah, I was gonna say um you should be able you should feel like you can bring stuff up maybe you're wrong but you should still be able to bring things up ask questions um and not be like scolded or demeaned or ignored um if you are that's a bad sign um So yeah, Yeah, I love that point as well. Well, Leah, thank you so much. Like, I think there's so much, like you have so much wisdom in this. Like there's so many little tidbits that I just want to like pull out and just share like snapshots. Um, But hopefully everybody can listen to the whole thing. Um, Thank you for sharing your story here and in the book and just in general, I think it's really helpful to people that resonate with what you've been through. Um, And yeah, I just thank you so much. Thank you. This episode was brought to you in part 
by The Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.